Hey, everybody. Welcome back to D3 Glory Days, saved from the brink of bankruptcy after a poorly timed investment into GameStop. I'm Noah, joined as always by my co-host, Stu Newstat. I've got a great guest on tap for you here today that Stu's going to tell you about here in a minute. Um, in the meantime, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can check out our merch on our website or through um, Instagram. You are probably aware of what Instagram is. Um, you can also support this podcast by buying us a coffee. That's a small donation you can also access through the website or the show notes. Um, we really appreciate the people who have supported us so far. Keeps the wheels on the ground. Um, Stu, why don't you tell us who we're talking to today? Yeah, today we're joined by Peter Bromka, who was one of the fastest men to not qualify for the Olympic trials in 2020. That may sound like a negative thing, but Peter has shed some great perspective on his marathoning journey through his writing and his love for the sport. Before the marathon journey began, he got his start in Division Three by originally enrolling at Trinity College, then later transferred to Tufts University after his first year. At Tufts, he had an up and down road filled with injuries as well as running at the national meet. He claims one of his highlights of his college career was winning the D3 Outdoor New England 10K. His story will relate to a lot of you because he left college without being an All-American, without being a national champion, but continued to improve because he loved the sport. His first marathon was just over three hours and he wanted to make sure he could qualify for Boston again. So he got on this journey and whittled his time down year after year to running 219 three separate times. A crushing blow to miss the Olympic trials by under a minute three separate times, but it shaped his running career and I don't think he has many regrets from it. You know, we learned a lot from Peter and his story and I think this will be a great way for you to get out the door this winter, crush some miles, and know that it's okay to go all in on running after you graduate. Thanks, Stu. Yeah, it was great to have Peter on. Um, we've engaged in some lively Twitter banter over the years, and so it's cool to finally get him on the other side of the microphone. And I think his story, and especially that Olympic trials chase, are, uh, are really cool and really interesting. So stay tuned for that. If you like the conversation, which we always hope you do, please like the episode, subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend. It really helps us grow. Until next time, here's to the glory days. All right. Welcome to D3 Glory Days, everybody. Against all odds and three time zones, we are finally assembled and ready to bring you premium podcast content. Um, we're joined today by Peter Bromka. And Peter, I'm struggling a little bit with how to introduce you because I don't want to oversimplify your story. But are, are you okay with being called the, the fastest guy not to make the 2020 trials? Um, yeah, it's a good way to put it. Um, there was technically, unfortunately, one guy who slipped ahead of me on the time ranking, but having no! run pretty close three times. Yeah. Um, that's the thing about making the trials. You actually get to be on a list and know where you stand, which was like the thing I was most, one of the things I was most excited about, but trying to make the trials. Um, and then the moment you're over that 219, it's just like a free for all of like checking random race websites. So uh, Jake 
Krolik, I think, at Houston, um, missed by under a second. Oh, no. Um, yeah, which was like, there's a great video of him, which he is admitted is a great video of him just like, I don't even know how he knew really, like just sort of like looking up like what in the world. But yeah, um, I had my story told on NPR as the fastest and most consistent was the way the author, who's a total running geek also, um, because I had missed by under a minute three times. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for the people you know, who don't know at home, the standard for the 2020 Olympic marathon trials was two hours and 19 minutes. And Peter in his three marathons leading up to that day ran 21940, 21902, and 21920. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, which, which is crazy. I mean, it's super consistent. They're, they're awesome marathon times and in any other context, but for you, they were huge improvements in the marathon, weren't they? Yeah, it's pretty, it was pretty wild. And I've written a decent amount about it, but like I was started years ago. So I graduated Tufts in 05 and I ran the Boston marathon that year over three hours. And then the next year I came back and broke three hours and then kind of stepped away from it for a bunch of years and came back to it and ran like in the forties and the thirties and then ran in the twenties a couple of times and thought like, Oh, I guess that's kind of it. Like, you know, that's pretty fast. And I'm not really sure why I would try to go faster necessarily, but then me and my teammates ran 223 and we were like, well, maybe the trials is possible. Like, and that was this really, it was this thing that was concrete enough. Um, I like to say like, when I had run 228, I was like, what's the difference between 27, 26, 25? But when then we ran 223, it was like, well, if we can take another five minutes off, we could go to this crazy meet where it's the best runner marathoners in the country. Um, so it was totally worth shooting for. Um, and yeah, like it's really still weird to me to hear that I'm a 219 marathoner because I spent so much time thinking about 218. Like it's, it's this minor thing and logically you know the difference but um i had a buddy introduce me to another one he's like yeah you ran 219 and i'm like oh yeah i like wasn't even focused on that so i looked past it for a while and i've it's taken me a while to even like really appreciate it and it's frustrating in a way because like yeah in the marathon there is that that minute barrier and so like in my last race marty ran 208.59 and he gets to be a 208 guy and I was only 10 seconds back, but I'm doomed to be a two and nine guy. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, yeah, I was watching that race closely and being like, come on, like, you know, Marty's pulling. Oh, I mean, first of all, I was like, oh, come on, no, you, you can get him. And then it's that whole foreshortening with the camera. They're like, mm-hmm. he's a little further. It's not like a lean. Um, but then I was, once they zoomed in on Marty, I'm like, come on, Marty, like get under, like it matters. Yeah. It, <laughs> you know, you, you can throw up your hands and then be like, oh shoot, I slowed down for that. So um, I learned in road racing that they round up to the nearest second. So 219.02 is actually 219.01 and a half, but you know, they don't have a laser on it. So they just roll round up and um, you wouldn't think it would matter, but then it starts to really matter. Yeah. Preparing for this, I did a lot of reading of your own writing, and I think you do an eloquent job of, you know, bringing the reader to kind of feel 
what you were feeling and kind of that notion of you've always been dreaming about 218 when you're a 219 marathon, I think in one of your things at the Houston, for your last attempt, someone was like, is it the 219 crew? And you're like, no, 218. So it's that mindset <laughs> of wanting to go run that. Um, and I think the quote that I kind of want to start things off with is you said in another one before you, these attempts was the pursuit of an audacious goal is worthy of a lifestyle as I can imagine. And I, I think that kind of is a nice sum of what D3 runners kind of go through. Like they have these goals in mind of wanting to continue this passion, this love of theirs and they want to go do it at a school where they can get an education. And now you take that and you implant it into your normal life now yeah. and going after those goals. Did you ever kind of reminisce of your college days while you're pursuing? the? Absolutely. I love how much you guys love D3 running because I love it as well. Um, and I always felt as a D3 runner, like, well, the best thing about running is I multiple times a year get to compete against the get best guys in the region regardless of you know their classification so i'm running against guys in the ivy league or guys from providence you know like the guy from providence would just run away from me but then i got to see him run away from me and i don't feel like i never had to feel like well if i ever got in the court with him if i ever got that chance and so i very much like i mentioned i ran in college and so i ran in high school and then i knew i wanted to keep playing sports, but I wasn't gonna um, play soccer in college. I was a much better runner. And I, I always say like, if I could have run at Stanford in like the early 2000s, that would have been my ultimate dream, but I was no, not fast enough or academically talented enough to go. So um, I was looking for the thing, the level that would allow me to just like throw myself into it. Um, and division three was that. And I think nowadays, it's hilarious because I'm 39 years old. And when I really stare down a goal, I still think of myself as that like D3 college kid who's like, I'm better than this. Like I can do this. Like I'm, you know, um, and it can be, it can be like kind of a double-edged sword because you can sometimes get really, if you really are in that mindset, you can get really um, unappreciative of where you are at. You're like, I mean, I remember I never, I've never broken 15 minutes for the 5k, but like when I went from 1530 to 1516, I was like, all right, so break 15, run 1444, maybe dip under like be at nationals in like two years. And then like, it starts to stall and you, you have, I had trouble appreciating just where I was at any given moment because I was only in, as a college kid, I was relative to what I thought I somehow could be capable of. And that's just like the dreaming of a, now that I'm a decade and a half older, I still am like, think of myself in those moments. Like if I'm in a track workout or I'm, when I'm pushing my hardest, I still like channel that, I think, picture you have of yourself of what you're capable of, um, which is just the love of it all. I want to take you back to your um, early college days, if you'll allow me to. Um, <laughs> So you are originally from Oregon, correct? Yep. And yep. but you decided to change coasts, and yep. uh, it originally went to Trinity. Is that right? Yeah. So I um, am from Portland. I live in Portland now. But I had my parents are both from the East Coast. They both went to Boston College, and so I had always thought it would be 
cool to go to the East Coast. Um, and they have a lot of great small schools to look at. Um, so I tried to get into Tufts and didn't get in. And then I got into Trinity was like very fortunate. It's a good school and the coach and like the, what is it? GA, like definitely, you know, did some work for me and helped me get off, get in off the wait list. And, um, Trinity is a small school, like under 2000 kids, um, and really good academics, but just like smaller athletic program. And so then during indoor, which was like so much fun, I knew nothing about indoor on the West coast. Um, we go up to a meet at Tufts and I'm just like, oh man, they should not have shown me this, what this is like during an indoor meet. Like, and that's pretty soon within like a month or so, I was like applying to transfer because it, it was just so exciting to be up in Boston at the indoor facility there, the Gantry Center, and just like all of the fans, you know, your teammates and fans just like screaming their heads off. I was like, this is what I want to be a part of. Um, and so I ended up transferring after one year up to Tufts University. It's interesting to hear, you know, you get into a NASCAC school, it's a good academic school, but then you see a better fit for yourself. And, you know, again, a goal that might be seen out of reach, but you want to go take it. That seems to kind of be a, a summary almost of your career path. It's sometimes easy in hindsight to say like, this is how things were and this is how they made sense. I definitely had a vision for what I was looking for. I knew that if I was in Connecticut at this, it's kind of like a university level you know, like boarding school, like it's very small. It's very, it's in Hartford. So no one really stays in Hartford after graduation. There's not like a reason to be there. And I, my biggest fear was like, I'm going to be here, but just sort of on this Island and I'm not going to get an experience. That's a true East coast experience. Once I graduate in a couple of years, I'm not going to have any ties except for maybe some friends. We could all move to Austin. Um, I felt very much like, I don't know where this leads and I'm not that excited by it. And then I went up to Boston and, um, you know, like we were talking about like the recruiting trips, like when kids would come to a recruiting trip at Tufts, we'd bring them to like a Celtics game and then be like, this is all part of the city that you'd be in. And for some people that was a super big draw. And other people are like, I remember one kid was like, no, I'm headed to Hanover, New Hampshire to go to Dartmouth. And you're like, cool. You like, didn't need to be in Boston. That's not what you were looking for. Whereas I, I think I did have that vision. And so then I stayed in Boston for four or five years after university and lived with some of my best, you know, teammates from school and just like had a blast. And that was my twenties. And I don't think I knew that as a 20 year old, 18, 19 year old, but like, I had a thought that like, that's more of what's I'm looking for. And I mean, it's a Tufts university versus Trinity college. And so there's just more, and I'm like a very social person and like to see just more going on. So I was excited for that. And it turned out, yeah, to totally be, um, in this crazy turn of events. I mean, there's glory days. We got to relive our best moments. Like I had gone to nationals as part of Trinity's team. I show up at Tufts and I had mono that summer. So I missed the fall. And then at the end of that fall, my first fall at Tufts, I got nominated to be the captain for a co-captain for the coming year. So it was this moment of, there was not a lot of super dedicated runners on the cross country team for the class above me. It was like this guy, Peter, he hasn't run for us yet, but he has already run at the national level and he's 110% into the team and committed to, you know, the future of where we're headed. And so in like, 
I was a two-year captain of the Tufts cross country team, which is, I was super proud of. And it was like one of those things that is in some ways kind of obvious because you're so invested that it's, there's no question about like where your loyalty lies. Two questions. First, who was paying for those Celtics tickets? <laughs> yeah. I, I think we may have uncovered an NCAA Hold violation. on. This is the recruiting. This is how we're getting them in. Yeah, exactly. It's like um, on a Friday against in the early 2000s Celtics up in the nosebleeds, we are... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm picturing like uh, blue chips and then this is not exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Who Mark, paid for that friend. cannoli that you got in the North End? I'm, yeah. I'm going to look at, I need some receipts. <laughs> so you were after pretty quickly after transferring, after not even running really in the fall. You know, we, we all know that there's varying degrees of commitment level division three. You got kids who are yeah. kind of just happy to be there. And then you have kids who are probably like way over committed for the level mm-hmm. of competition. You know, I was I was hearing you talk a little bit about your college days in another interview and you mentioned that you were basically burned out the entire time. Was that a byproduct of your huge commitment level? Yeah, I mean, I've looked it back. And just been like, why was that so damn hard? And sadly, I was, I ran at three national cross country championships. At least two of them, I was injured. Like, and this was, I don't get stress fractures really, knock on wood, but I get kind of like my hips get out of line. And then, so, so then you're like cadence is off and you kind of just feel like very inefficient. Um, so it's been a little bit painful before this to look back at my cross country national results and be like, yeah, I mean that. I have buddies who are like, that was the hardest race I've ever run or like in the top five. And I'm like, it's, it's hard to go faster when you're injured, but it's not necessarily painfully hard because you can't really go that deep. I had moments my sophomore year, junior year, where I look back at it. And I'm just like, I want to like give my younger self a hug because I would sit there at my desk and just be like, I don't want it enough. Like I'm not invested enough. And you're like, in hindsight, I was over-invested in reality, I was kind of doing other people's training. I wasn't doing the training that played to my strengths. I was like trying to match the mileage of one guy, trying to match the intervals of another. And um, I mean, quite simply, I look at some of the resulting really workouts these days as part of marathon training, but I rarely do like full out. We would have weekends and we, we would race so much as a D college um particularly in the early 2000s it was like and before i think people have gotten a little wiser but we used to race so much um i looked at some meet that was in the spring where we went down to wesleyan and i ran the 800 1500 double and like objectively that's not much mileage um it shouldn't be that hard of a session but it's like taxing your body as hard as you can in a 1500 and then coming back an hour later and running as hard as you can 800 and i think now that I'm almost 40, I look back and I'm like, I can do a lot of work, but if I go absolutely do hundred percent too often, I'm just tired. Um, so I remember lining up for five K's in college and just being like, I, I probably could go take a nap like right now. And they're calling us to the line. And the most frustrating thing I've, I write a lot about running and the most frustrating thing I've struggled to define and describe is the difference between fatigue that's like the right type of fatigue or pain quote unquote that's the that's okay that you learn is okay in time 
and the kind of pain that you're like, that's a warning sign. I got to take tomorrow off. Um, and I think both it's hard to describe and it's different for everybody. I imagine like how to doing too much shows up in your body. Um, my mom said to me though, like, could you have been better than you were in college if you trained like you train now? Um, and I said like, yes, but it wasn't even a question. I mean, it was all about us training together and the hard runs we did together on two, you know, Wednesdays and Mondays and you'd like run a race. Again, if you run 8K cross country really hard and then you take a shower and you, we didn't party hard, but you like stay out at all. And then you try to run a long run the next day. Um, Cause we were reading, we were like, oh, long, like good guys run 15, 16 miles on Sundays. Um, I just look at that weekend of stress and then you try to study. I'm like, it was just too much. Um, and so I look back at those times and think if I could have somehow convinced myself to do half as much of the programming somehow while still running a lot, um, I could have run a lot better, but that's just not even in the cards because I've known guys who are like, well, I'm going to do my own training. And suddenly they're on an Island and they're not part of the like ebb and flow of the team. And it's, it's a pretty quick way to not to like miss out on all the good stuff anyways. Let's hear about those teams. You're part of at Tufts. And you know, what was the team culture? Like, what were the guys like? It sounds like you ripped some pretty good workouts. <laughs> I mean, it's so much fun. Like, we were a pretty big team because we were a pretty big school. So I, I like how you describe, like there's varying levels of commitment, but there's also just like so many different personalities who are ebbing and flowing into like, Oh, where's he at? Oh, he's like off on this, doing this other, he's deep into this other program right now. Like we had, we were also an engineering school. So we had like some deep nerds on our team and they were just so awesome. I like to brag about like, you know, nowadays there's streaming services for meets and things, but in, in 2003, I think it was, we had some guys on our team, like hook up the tech to live stream meets that were happening at Tufts over, um, just like IP addresses that we would text to people. Oh, sorry. We weren't even texting really at that point. We were just like sending it over AIM. Um, and then I went out to I think it was like Wisconsin whitewater to watch my buddies run at nationals. And I was like, I'm bringing it, put it in a backpack. Like I'll hook it up to, I'll plug it in through an ethernet cord. And then someone's like, Whoa, doesn't someone own the streaming rights to the NCA indoor meet? And you're like, Oh shit. Like does CBS own that? Like we might be totally violated because no one owns the streaming rights to like the Bowdoin invitational in January. Like you're welcome to throw that online, but um, so we had just like so many guys, so many, um, like definitely good workouts. We used to go, so Tufts is also has a veterinary school. Um, and part of the culture of Tufts in the era I was in, they've moved past this was the coach at the time, Connie Putnam was insisted that we drive out on Tuesdays. We'd leave the university at like two 30, drive an hour out to central mass to work out on the farm course as they called it because it was a farm that they also you can get your veterinary degree there um i know people who have and we would run our on those fields and like it's at a camber and like there's potholes everywhere and like he would be out there 
from the morning filling in the potholes like to make it smoother and like now i'll look at photos of the fields that tufts just has on campus and be like guys why didn't we just like do two mile reps around the fields and it's like that was not that was not going to be tough enough it was not going to like be hardcore enough so and but like imagine that on tuesdays you have the excuse you can't be in class or study you got to jump in the van and hang out with your buddies for an hour out to the workout and then you got to you do a workout through these crazy hills and you know coach would coach was one of these old timey coaches who like i like i realized at some point he had all the workouts just aggregated in his mind and so he would just some of the young guys would be like this is bullshit he comes up with it like 5 minutes before and i'm like Yes and no. Like he has all of the workouts he's programmed for 30 years in his mind. And he knows roughly like what part, what season it is, like what week of September or October. Um, and you'd be like, oh, I'm thinking two by two mile, you know, like with some, some good hill reps at the end. And you're like, did he just come up with that? And you're like, easy, easy. Like he knows his shit. Um, now was, was, would I be open to the criticism that he could have like slightly more nuanced programmed those of us who were overdoing it versus those of us who were underdoing it? Like, yes. Or, or those of us who were going to be, those of the team that were going to be all Americans and those of us who were just going to try to stick with the all Americans. Um, that's the biggest thing I learned was there was this book and I forget the name of it, but it was all of, it was basically timetables for, it was like, it'd be like a V dot um, app, but translated into pages. And so it's like, okay, if you want to run 1440 for the 5k, this is what you would do for your two mile reps. And so we're like, okay. So then we'd run faster than those and we'd reverse engineer and be like, oh yeah, we are in 1420 shape. And meanwhile, you were supposed to run the two mile reps at like 80%, 90%, and we're running them at 90%. Um, so you get a totally different stimulus. Um, we weren't like a... I don't think any of, there wasn't like any of the negative. I've been a part of training groups post-collegiately that are like uh, big dogging each other. Like, oh, you know, like kicking it in on the sec third, you know, just like sort of glorifying uh, different workout reps. This wasn't that so much. It was just like collectively, a bunch of us would try to prove ourselves in the workout and then walk into a race and just be like dead people walking. Um, so tons of, it was just so much stimulus. It was like strength on Tuesdays, speed on Thursdays, one or two or three races, racing your guts out on Saturdays and then, and then repeat and then repeat. Um, and so it was so much fun, but also just like way too much taxing of my central nervous system. I love that idea of reverse engineering workouts to like <laughs> to prove fitness and, and just <laughs> it's like looking back on it, it's ridiculous. Right. But in the moment it felt so good. It makes so much sense in the moment. You're like, but I did that faster. And they're like, yeah, but did you see the other number on the sheet said like, this should be an 85%. And you're like, and then you kind yeah, of what is that you kind of convince yourself that it was 85% at that point. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd be for the guy who like, was on, on like 14, 15, but for the guy who's at 15, 15, like that's a world apart. So I want to know what your proudest race was like you're the best performance that you had in your mind and then i'm going to tell you why it was the 2003 cross country national championship oh. <laughs> but you go first the 2000 
I can't even. Oh, I love the objectivity. I'm like, so I like can't even look at any of my race. I mean, it's probably like you guys, you look at your race and you see the race, but it's like the actual result is one small part of the larger context that it's sat in. I will say, this sounds like it's selfless, but my best moment ever was the regional meet when we first won regionals. Um, I, that was the fall of 2003. And I'm forgetting, this sounds way more selfless than it is. I just remember the moment when I looked back in the woods and I realized that Keene State wasn't going to pass us, that I was running in like sixth position and there was no way that their fifth guy was going to pass me in the final mile. And like, I'll never forget that moment of like looking over my shoulder and then yelling to the guys like, go. And then knowing we were going to win regionals, which we'd never done. And Keene State had dominated so wholly since I'd shown up in New England and they had won nationals. They had won regionals just sort of like as a, an aside, like, yeah, that's what we do. Um, that they had built their way in my imagination, they were like the 10,000 pound gorilla, like they, they were unbeatable. Um, and yeah, like they had lost a couple guys to graduation and we had gotten better. And so um, that was a, on a course up in Maine. And that was just like the coolest feeling ever um, to win that race. I would say like, um, I'm not sure if it's like on a, a timetable sort of numerically the best performance I've ever had, but to finish my career, um, finding a 10 K that I was able to win because it was the weekend after the NESCAT conference championship and before the all new England championship. Um, and so it was like just my ability level, um, to kick to a victory in your last collegiate track race was a pretty awesome feeling. Um, and but I want to hear from people who are objectively newcomers to looking at the Peter Brofka collegiate data set, which <laughs> I find to be a very painstaking data, painful data set to look at. Um, I'm curious how it reads to fresh eyes. Well, I was going to say, you mentioned you won regionals in 2003. Um, but then at nationals, you went on to annihilate a man <laughs> named Will Lear. Oh. You, just, you destroyed him. <laughs> yes it's all about the getting scalps before they're matured <laughs> a young will uh, a freshman will lear you you beat him by like 50 spots oh yeah i mean he's a miler you know cross country i'm sure they like it, you know in that warm i always think of those guys out there like such a beautiful school and warm california <laughs> sun like you fly him out to the middle of the country in in november and they're probably just like what the hell is this um that's awesome i hadn't thought about that in the longest time yeah, yeah i was i was just going through the results um looking at names and and you actually i mean you raced Nick Simmons and Will Lear, which, you know, are the two biggest names Division Three has produced, which you wouldn't have really known at, at the, the time, time, but it is kind of cool to look back on. Yeah, I think um, that's awesome. No, I mean, I remember distinctly when, yeah, so Ryan Bach was my um, teammate and at, at Trinity and then at the Nationals in 2003, which is his senior year, people didn't really know anything about Nick Simmons and the way I remember it, I'm sure there was a lot of people from Willamette and such cheering for Nick Simmons. Um, but in my memory, it was like, you could have heard a pin drop at the nationals in 
I forget it was in upstate New York um, because we all expected Ryan Bach to win, you know, the mile. Um, and he just gets, I mean, he gets kicked down in the final hundred in, I like to say to people like, you've all seen it because Nick just did the same exact kick at the next level and then the next level and the next level. But um, yeah, I mean, super fun to have been there for some of those early moments of these guys that we're still talking about. It feels crazy. Kind of on that same note, you mentioned you were AMing people the IP address to stream. So, you know, that's the sense of technology that are in the times. So do you have an idea of who the big studs were in the division or how did you understand, you know, obviously the NESCAC, it's all, you all know the NESCAC. Beyond that, how much familiarity do you have with the rest of the nation? It changed sort of right after I, like uh, Paul Short Invitational, I never went to, but the guys went like, I think the next year and there, and technology and the importance of going to these meets um, to earn points even for a national cal- a scale that they started to create. I feel like we were still the era of like, you'd look at some mid rest results and be like, I guess we're just going to assume a bunch of these Wisconsin schools are going to be awesome. Like maybe we'll be able to see if um, another, you know, you're like Calvin's going to be good, but like, are you really going to have any way to know until regionals? Um, So there was a little bit of blind, you knew nationals would be fucking nuts. And you just hoped that like you'd come out on the right side of it. I mean, the thing about nationals is it's like cross country, I suppose, like in terms of like club adult club cross country is a little bit like this. Like you'll look at a race and be like, that guy ran like shit. And then you look at another guy and be like, that guy ran awesome. And they're like 13 seconds apart. And you're like, oh yeah, because if you get caught on the wrong side of this, like three guys finishing a second, then you're like, yeah, he, th- he finished 35 spots behind the guy we thought he was going to beat. The results from the fall 2000. 2000- and four race where we finished sixth um, and we thought we could be on the podium. Well, basically just like, I like to think the older I get like in the, (laughs) I like to think it's like a good haunt, but like we can, the guys who are on that team can barely look at the results because you can look at any runner who is in the top five and be like, he only needs to move up five seconds. And if he moves up five seconds and we're on the podium. Um, And like, as a D3 guy, we know it's, not D1, but like the trophies look the same. And I'm like, I know what that trophy looks like. And I'm like, if we could bring one of those back for the Tufts University, it would just be so amazing. And so I've wondered so much in this answer, but like, yeah, I, I didn't really know you because the, because the best teams would typically be so much better than their competition regionally. So you like knew North Central was good, but like how good. Um, and there was, that was, before uh, I think like some of the clustering that teams like flying to go to big meets so that you could see some head to head results. We didn't really have that. Um, so no, it, you would just go in assuming it was going to be nuts. Just a, this isn't just a random thought, but just to go back to your point about the trophies looking the same. I mean, I think that's a really good point, right? Because now, you know, from the outside, everybody looks at division three and even like former division three people and they always want to compare it to mm. d2 or d1 or whatever or put you into context or like make you know humble you a little bit but you know my experience as a division three athlete and it sounds like yours i mean that's the whole world that you inhabit there is no d1 
they're they're almost a different breed of people and so yeah i mean yeah. there's just something kind of beautiful about that and like i think why division three athletes always kind of give each other a little head nod because it's just like we know how real it is well i mean I like to say in marathoning that all I'm ever trying to recreate is how exciting D3 cross country nationals was because that was my most, it's part of the reason I kind of like, I mean, any number of reasons why someone wouldn't train hard post collegiately because what are your goals? I also like, I felt as though I had come the closest to the most exciting running experience that existed that I could be a part of. Like, yeah, if I could make it to the Olympic trials or the, you know, the Olympics, that'd be better, but I wasn't going to. And so I actually ran the Boston marathon thinking like, it was almost like this emotional junkie. Like what's the next exciting thing where fans are screaming their face off and going nuts. I'm like, Oh, Boston seems kind of like it from what I've heard. And we would go every year to the top of heartbreak Hill, um, and scream at runners. And this again, before smartphones. So you would get the Boston globe, which had all of the listing of like, tens of thousands of people. Um, and then you would run down the, someone would run down the hill and be like, uh, Stuart's coming up the hill. And so then we'd all be like, Stuart, Stuart. And like, this was just, it would get people like, what, what's going on? Um, and so yeah, actually is faster than me. He's five years younger than me. And he, he really had his eyes set on D1 and he went to the university of Washington in Seattle and was just part of like, really great teams and like really top athletes. Um, and so he got to run at Stanford. He got to like be a part of some really exciting races. He actually did run at D one nationals. So I think like it, for cross country. So like he got to experience a pretty exciting thing, but I just knew for my talent level, um, there was no shortage of like layers more. I could have delved into, um, in cross country for, you know, when, when you're behind the bell curve, like you can go higher, 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 higher. Um, you know, yes, we know of like, I love that you interviewed some of the like rock and Missy, uh, Andrew rock and Missy, cause they were of my era and they were just like the most badass. Um, and so even to hear them talk about how much they loved it, like reinforced to me, like, okay, I could have been exponentially better and it still would have been exciting. You know, it really comes down to personal development and where you're happy. And I think one big thing about Division Three is if you do it right, you're going to come out of it a lifelong lover of running, um, which it Absolutely. seems like is what worked for you and kind of brings me to my next question. Um, you know, when you graduated in 2005, how did you look back on your collegiate career and where were you at with running, like looking forward? Yeah. I mean, I ran, I've never stopped running, um, in terms of like the lowest ever it ever was like the maybe peak. Um, what was funny was I came off of collegiate running and I got a charity number to run the Boston marathon. And I thought like, Oh, like a marathon that's so much slower, like I'll be fine. And like those races when I was early twenties are the only times I've truly hit the wall, like just hit the wall because I mean, fueling wasn't as advanced, you know, 15, 16 years ago, we didn't know quite as much. There was, weren't as many products to like put in pocket of your shorts or like all these drinks. And so I just remember the first time I ran Boston, like if you totally run out of sugar, you get like that, like you're almost itchy. 
I remember I, it was the first time I was like, oh, this is like when I used to play basketball out on the street, not come in snack hour, but it'd be like, my skin itches, like I'm mom, I need a snack, I'm dying here. Um, that's how I felt like coming through, like in the, like Boston college the first time. Um, and so I did Boston twice and had a blast. And then just thought like, that's the most fun you're ever going to have. I don't really have any goals per se. Like I wanted to run 255, I had decided. And then I ran 256 and I was like, okay, like sounds good. But um, I like to say we transferred, like the moment Boston stopped, my teammates and I, sorry, my roommates who were my teammates, we like transferred all that energy into like going to like Boston dance clubs, like six hours every night. So like Friday night after work, we'd be like, yeah, 10, you know, 9 PM to 2 AM. Like, let's just like hang out um, and then do it again on Saturday. And you're like, if you don't marathon train, you got all this extra energy <laughs> to just like have fun. Um, but we would still like get up before work a couple of days a week and get some running in. Um, and it wasn't till, I mean, the, the way I succinctly tell it is like, I moved to San Francisco and ran some there, did some trail running, but like no real goals. I think I did one track workout one time. Um, and then when I moved to Portland in 2013, that's when the Boston bombing happened. And my buddies, actually a couple of my teammates, close, close friends were running it that year. So you check in with them and they're like, we're okay. Um, I think it went off about like the four hour um, finishers were coming in. And then a bunch of us decided like, we all need to run Boston next year. Like Boston 2014 is gonna be the most amazing day. And so that's when I really started like focusing on, okay, I need to get a qualifier. And I suddenly had this thing that I was focused on, which got me out the door, you know, like six days a week at least. Um, and then built in longer training runs. And then that has been, the that was the beginning of this like crazy marathon adventure I've been on. And when people have asked me, a lot of newer runners are like, what are your lowest lows? They're like, you know, what hardships have you learned from? And I'm like, guys, I spent a lot of years banging right up against my limits in college, like knowing what fatigue looked like, knowing what like lower leg, soft tissue injuries, whatever the trainer offer you. And, th and those are like methods that are kind of old school, you know, like they're not the new like chiropractic, uh, like active release. I found an active release guy like uh, 30 minutes outside of school and I drive to meet with him. And like some of that stuff was, I feel like just emerging, but um, you get ice, ice and stem. That's all you get. Yeah. Ice yeah. And We're just going to shock. Yeah. Jump yeah. in the ice bath. <laughs> and you're like, I mean, okay. Ouch. But like, I feel, I mean, my hips would get so off. Like I was like walking to class, like kind of sideways because you're just like piling on more mileage. And I wasn't even running objectively high mileage. I was just running too much mileage for me to handle. Um, so I think that that's where I learned a lot of my lessons. Um, and when I came back to marathoning in 2013, 2014, I was so pissed at running from the injury perspective. I was like, being injured is so not worth it. I'm just gonna stay on this side of injury. Like, I'm just not gonna risk it because I get really sad. And I, I just, I had a lot of, baggage from that era. Um, and I think that's what allowed me. I, I mean, earlier we referenced when I ran 223 and I kind of like went all in to try to make the trials. That was the first time I was like, if I get hurt, it'll be okay because it'll mean like, at least I'm risking it all. Whereas I would say from like 2014 to 2017, I was very much like 
easy, like push, but easy, but like, don't push too hard because that fucking sucks when you get hurt. And then you're like, no fun to be around. Um, you know, we all know it, but I just like, it allowed me, I would check back in with those sensations that I had learned in college. Um, and it's easy for people who haven't been injured to be like, well, you just don't get injured and, um, you can just ascend to great heights. And I'm like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right after college, you mentioned you, you know, ran with your teammates slash roommates. And then when you got to Portland, you joined Barman track club elite, like the one step below the pros, you know, how important was that? And you wrote about a lot, especially Patrick, your teammate in your writings, you know, how important was that to have that group and those teammates with you through this marathoning journey the past, what, seven years or so? What's interesting is it's sort of like the whole thing. I have a lot of friends who've trained solo and I met some of whom I'm way, you know, decently faster than, but I'm like, I'll look at the workouts they do solo. And I'm like, damn, I'm so impressed that you went out and like actually started the workout and then like ran well, you know, because when I'm left on my own devices to do a workout, I'll be like, I'm going to dilly dally a little bit, like take a little bit longer. Um, but there's a lot of the things I mentioned, like built into what I was just saying about like, I was nervous about overdoing it. So I started running some more and I get connected to Patrick and Patrick is, he's sort of like a player coach of our crew. He um, knows a lot about the, I know a ridiculously little about how to program workouts and um, training methods, because I think I don't even want to know for the most part, I just follow what Patrick programs and that allows me to not really stress about it like emotionally not be like oh am I doing it right one thing that's interesting Patrick and I have worked out together for so many years that he'll be like yeah I'm thinking like tomorrow we do like 10 by 800 and I'm like okay sounds good and we won't even mention paces to each other because we have learned from over the years we know the general zone that we'll be in and we know that given the, particularly in the middle of a marathon build, we know that given the amount of mileage we're running, it doesn't really matter if we say what we're going to run, we're going to hold each other honest. And if it like, if we said like, those are at 220 um, and you get out there and it's like 705 and it's cold and it's like, and you're running 221s or 222s, we're both old enough to be like, that's what the pace is today. And to talk about that book and everything, that's more, we know that that's like 85 or whatever. That's the right zone to be in. Whereas if we were like, I think our younger selves would be like, no, it needs to be 219. If like the book says 220, we need to break that every time. Um, so we've got younger guys join our team and be like, hey, what, what splits are we trying to hit today? And we're like, yeah, yada, yada, like fall in line. Yeah, like you take the third rep. So like having those teammates, I mean, when I ran 223, we had a buddy who ran 221. And so I've described it as like, as simple as the fact that I, I just wanted to keep up with my buddy. I was just like, I think I could stay up with Chris, like at the next one. Like, I, I think he's faster than me, but like, if I play it really smart and, um, you know, try really hard, maybe I could stay with him for as long as possible. And so that's like, when I ran 21940, I couldn't even believe like when I finished that I had broken 220 for the marathon because I had just been trying to stay with my buddy Patrick. Um, and then once he pulled away, I was like, just hold it together, just hold it together. Um, and I'm really proud. If there's one thing I'm super proud of myself, it's that like, I think coming out of my college experience and doing 
trying so hard um, and kind of over trying, just thinking if I tried harder, it would produce better. Um, I have been able to produce a string of marathons where like, I know my line of what's too much, like a lot better than I did when I was younger. Um, and I've gotten pretty good at not stepping over that in training. And then also like not, I think my teammates have really helped me the moment I've been hurting in a marathon. Let's say they've pulled away. I think of my teammates in that moment and I'm like, I wouldn't be able to tell them with a straight face, like, oh yeah, I, I couldn't do it. Like, I think they'd be like, why'd you run 225? Like you were on pace for 220. Um, maybe they would never ask that question, but I think that it's an, it's an understood conversation that could happen. And so I see a lot of people fall off in the marathon and sure it gets hard at the end and you might give back seconds. You might give back a minute, but when people give back like seven minutes, unless there's an injury, I'm like, I think that's just kind of like they, they popped out of their, the mindset they were in and they just wrote it in, you know, and that's fine. But I think of it like my teammates are going to be like, you know, how'd it go? You know, cause the moment one of any of us finish, we turn around and we're like, where's the next guy? I mean, like the coolest thing that's happened to me in the last couple of years is we won the Boston marathon team title in 2019. And we went into the race. I, my dad was like, he told me after he's like, I thought you might finish sixth for the team. Cause we had like five guys who probably could have run low two twenties. Um, but it's Boston. So like you'd get like two guys like blow up. And then one guy fell right at the start because like a guy went down in front of him. So he tripped and he was bleeding. So he stopped and had to get stitches. Um, and all of a sudden, like I'm the top runner for our team. And I definitely have to finish well because like now I'm carrying that number one position. And then I turn around and I like get to see Patrick come in and then you're just like, we need a third, we need a third. So it's like cross country. Um, and Chris Maxwell comes in and you're just like, we got it. Like, we're pretty sure we got it. And then they, it's like the coolest text message you can ever get. It says like your presence is requested at the BAA uh, championship banquet. And you're like, we'll be there. <laughs> um, so yeah, having that team around me, um, it's just like, it's everything. And I could talk about it for hours. One moment I really liked an uh, interview. I was listening to you, listening to, um, it was you and Patrick on with Nick Rocher. And um, there was this moment where you were recalling a conversation you were having with a friend and you were just like, man, I'm taking this like really serious, aren't I? And they were like, yeah, you're, you actually have been like, you know, skipping these hikes and camping trips or whatever. Um, did it, like how surprised were you, like how seriously you ended up taking your marathon training? To me, the OTQ chase, a whole bunch of threads came together where like, I like to describe it as, you know, people are like, you're so into marathoning. And I'm like, yeah, but you're into like biking and you're into like fishing. And you also like, like you have multiple hobbies and I've like really honed in on this is my hobby. And it pays off because I have like good friends who do it. So then you had that going and I'd, I'd done that for a couple of years and I had a really good time doing that. And I, when people will write me from around the world and be like, I'm 236 guy, I wanna break 220, what are your tips? And I'm like, just let go of that goal for now and enjoy where you're going. Because like I ran 234 at New York City and it was like so much fun. I mean, that was my PR at the time and it was just a blast. So that's sort of like a zone I got to be in and enjoy. 
And then you drop the OTQ goal on top of that. And that's when I was like, okay. Um, in hindsight, I was like, oh yeah, that's when I started lifting twice a week, very seriously. And then increasing, I was, had never really doubled before. So then you're like, okay, now I'm going to start doing two to three doubles a week. Um, and it is, it's like these, you start to think about in the moment, you're just looking down, thinking about the behaviors that you need to add to your routine and then trying to not overdo it because yeah, by the time I got close to the OTQ attempt, particularly in 2019, like I ran 21940 in 2018. And then I spent a year preparing for the race that we were talking about with Nick. And you're just like, holy shit, this is part of my life, like almost every day. And it's definitely part of like, what I think about when I'm going to bed or like, you know, you're have your head on your pillow, like thinking about the last 10 K of CIM, like it's a super fun thing, but like, wow, you were obsessed. Um, and I mean, to be totally honest, like it reached a point in that final couple months where it was totally an obsession. And I, I mean, I missed the trials by two seconds. And then a couple of weeks later, I had to say to a woman on a project I was working on, I'm like, I got to admit, I was pretty distracted the week after CIM. Like I did not get you a couple of things that I had promised you. Um, and she's like, okay, thanks for saying that. Um, so then I'm like, and I'm going to Houston. <laughs> and she's like, okay, well, you know, we have these deadlines um, and we have these deliverables we need to get done. And, you know, in this moment, she represents like my profession, my uh, project collaborator. And then on, I sort of the like real my world. other, yeah, the, the actual world, world that <laughs> matters and your livelihood. And then on the other shoulder, I have like, like that hundreds of people from around the world DMing me like, you gotta go for it again in Houston, you gotta go. And I'm like, and she, I'm like, so I'm going to Houston. And she's like, well, don't you think based on what you just said, like that'll also be distracting? And I'm like, yeah. And like, but I, I sort of, you know, it feels too cheesy to say like, I think I might be living the pinnacle of my running life right now. I need to go. Um, it's like Goodwill hunting or something. Like, I got to go see about a race. Um, it's just totally over the top. And so it was, be, it was totally an obsession. Um, at the smallest increments, it's like, hey guys, on the weekend, I'll meet you in the afternoon, Saturday mornings, I'm going to be busy. Um, but it, it builds to a lot more than that. And I don't think everyone needs to live like that. But um, I mean, I've mentioned on some podcasts, how like, I know guys who are better runners than me, who will be like, Oh, I ran Chicago. And then, you know, around January, I got get got going again, for, with some goals. And I'm like, so you took like all of November and December, like, not really running. Okay, like, that's up to you or like, but I have pretty much been like, slightly like easy foot on the gas um, for a couple of years. And that's what's like allowed me to steadily improve, I think without over revving. Um, but it's like the blessing of having teammates who are, you know, only 10 days, 14 days after a marathon will be like, Hey, want to meet up for like an easy run? And you're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. You know, I resonate a little bit with that not only, you know, being obsessed over certain goals, but earlier in the show, you mentioned, you know, you look back at some of your college results and you're like, damn, I wish I didn't have to look at that. And I kind of feel the same way about my college results. And that has propelled me 
um, into what my post-collegiate running has been, you know, do you feel that's kind of where maybe that spark comes from where like you look back, it's like, crap, that sucked. I need to do better in my post-collegiate days. I definitely think so. I mean, it's like both you learn from the things you didn't do right. Um, or how, when it wasn't feeling good. Um, but yeah, you end up being like so much left, so much opportunity left. Um, and also just, I think I was trying to describe it. I don't think I did it too well earlier. That idea of who you could be like, I was like, back when I really loved the 5k indoors, I still think like indoor track is so exciting and I'm not that good at it, but like how you, how I would picture myself in those moments. I'm like, that's still the standard I hold myself to when I hit the track and, you know, um, and that allows me to be like, go, it's a mental space I can go back to when I'm like just running, you know, reps out on a road training for a race that's in three months. It's like, I still think of those meets, um, as the runner, I think I could become if I really, um, did all the things right. Um, so I, yeah, I think collegiate athletics is this big wave and you're like, you can't just be like, Oh, you know, I'm gone. I'm not going to do Chicago. I'm going to do CIM because like I had a hiccup and I think it'll be better for my, where my body's at. It's like, this is when the races are. Um, this is when the regional is, this is when the championship is. So that's what makes it so exciting. Um, and like I'm, I said, like the, the emotional high, like probably the pinnacle of my running career was the 2004 cross country meet that we talked about. We left the hotel the morning of, and we were in Wisconsin and we drive to the course and we like, I can still picture it. We like come up over this overpass and there's vans of our teammates flying the Tufts flag on the side of the road. And like, I mean, I had to race in an hour and a half and I, I almost burst into tears because you're like, my buddies have driven through the night. These guys, money, many of them like never stood a chance of making varsity, certainly weren't going to run at nationals. And they are here. They're shirtless in Wisconsin in November and they're like covered in body paint and they're like ready to like just go nuts. And so you feel like a deep sense of like privilege and also honor that you get to represent the school that day. And it's just like, I mean, that's the best thing there is. So I think what the people want to know is that <laughs> is there going to be a 2024 chase? I mean, I think I've made it pretty clear. I wrote a piece titled "What Is the um, Olympic Trials Marathon?" with the express purpose of getting it to the distance running committee, the USATF distance running committee. And the whole premise of the piece is don't make the standards so extreme that it only nets like 50 guys because like there's an A standard and a B standard. And if you even think there should be a B standard, then please don't make it like 214. I mean, because I'm like, you'll net a bunch of guys and it'll be fine. But like, if they said, I think it, who knows why there, there's only going to be an A standard and it's going to be like, 213 I'd be like okay I mean you're gonna get the guys who are gonna who have a shot um but the moment you're gonna have a standard that's like in the high teens when I graduated Tufts it was 222 and I thought that was just like absurd I was like what do you I don't even know what that means I probably didn't even look up what the what the splits were um 
And so, yeah, I mean, I turn, I'm in a funny moment where people don't really want to hear this, but like I turn 40 next summer and I'm like, I don't even want to think about that. I want them to announce the trials time. And I want to just keep hanging out with like the 25 year olds um, who are on my team who are ripping and just like keep showing up. And I'm like, don't acknowledge how much older I am. Let's keep going because I still believe that I can run. I mean, I was still like, I, I, it sounds so funny, but like, people were like, do you still want to break 219? And I'm like, I know I'm getting older, but when in your life would you say to a runner, like, oh, you still want to PR? I'm like, yeah, it's as simple as that. I ran 21902. I just like I did when I was a kid, I want to break my personal best. So um, that's kind of how I simplify. And I just think, absolutely, um, let's do it. You know, and I, I think looking back, like the, the whole chase was more exciting than I ever could have imagined. And um, it's been so, then I was in Atlanta and that was just like so epic. And so I'm like, I hope that that could exist in the future and that I could be a part of it. About the standard. Um, I love the 219 number. I also wouldn't be upset if they slowed it down a little bit because it gives, you know, people the chance to dream. Um, and we get really awesome stories like yours. And I mean, one reason I continued to run after I graduated was I thought I could, I could run under 65 and a half and make the trials. Um, and I did. Um, and then I just kept running. And so I think it keeps a lot of people in the sport and especially like D3 guys, it's like, that's, that's yeah. a number that we can hit. And it's, it's a way we can continue to participate in a high level of sport. I agree, obviously, but I don't think um, what's, what cracks me up is like, there's no better compliment that you can be given than people like looking at you and being like, wait, Bromka ran that? Shit, I could do that. <laughs> like, I mean, I have had friends come out of the woodwork. When I broke 230, which is a big deal as an amateur dude, multiple people like that were like, I'm done with marathoning like started training again that I know and are like, screw that. Like I'm back in the game. Like if Bromka can do that, I'm doing it. Um, and so then as I've gotten now under 220, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't say that like guys who are in college or just post-college are paying that much attention to me, but I think collectively I've seen a lot of guys who are pretty fresh out of college and they're looking at the wave of, you know, qualifying for Atlanta or qualifying for whoever's next. Um, and they're like, that looks exciting. I'd be in on that. Um, and yeah, I don't, I mean, Esther, who you've had on, um, she was like, she's very analytical and was thinking about the math. And she's like, if you yield like between three and 5% of like a hundred guys trying to make the trials, like could end up as top talent, men or women could end up as top talent. Like that could really help the national field. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. I mean, I just think um, it's not, it's the, the awareness of, I don't know why like 222 seemed so crazy, you know, 15 um, for 2008, but um, it was now with social media and everything, people have seen like, this is possible and it's gonna bring a lot more talent out of the woodwork, particularly for guys who, like you're saying, Stuart, like come out of college with a little bit of chip on their shoulder. Like I got more to prove, like what's the, what's the exciting thing? And I mean, I say to my buddies who are like maybe, 5k specialist. I'm like, Hey, I'm sorry that like, 
I love the 5k. And if we had major meets where amateurs got to run 5k's and just like throw their uh, heart on the line, I think you would be as lucky as I feel because I love the marathon and I get to go to Boston or Chicago or New York or Sacramento and it's celebrated and it's exciting. So anything that keeps that going, I think I like to say, like, it's not that I think touring is the most important thing in the world, but it's hobby and we geek out on it. So we might as well like point towards what would make it even better and more exciting. And just this aspect of growing the sport. I mean, even after the marathon project, you had a renowned running source claim that it wasn't that great of a day and that we're never going to hear from some of these people again, which is just like absurd to just stop people in its tracks. So why stop, honestly, the highlight of 2020, probably in terms of running, um, like how much hype there was around it, how many people, how many stories in the job that Atlantic Track Club did. And now USATF is like, hmm. Rather not. Yeah. So apparently I like the piece that Esther and I wrote got to the distance running committee committee. We like, we saw a DM that said like, we're making sure that voice is being heard. Um, I will say about like the sort of hot take that the distance, the marathon project wasn't that good. I think of as I've actually spent time thinking, okay, that is there's events. Then there's reaction to the events or coverage of the events. Then there's coverage of the coverage. And that stuff, you just have to like block out. Like it doesn't make you happier. It's there. It's like any news source that does that type of uh, production, it's their like second week need to say something. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And like those of us who care about something are more focused on the actual thing. And I mean, I like to think about like, if there was anything like the marathon trials in golf, or in cycling, or in any of these hobbies, they would be like quadrupling down on it. They'd be like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. We should do more of it. It's sometimes like the, the you know, um, it's like the running world's own toughness on ourselves that we're like, well, how, you know, how good was it? And you're like, uh, it was pretty exciting. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and claim that it, it was as exciting that it was exciting. <laughs> it was legit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it was totally ridiculous. I mean, you, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Like the way you were running out there, and the fact that like I was hosting a Zoom call um, with a bunch of people like Chris Chavez, Lindsey Krause, um, Matt Fitzgerald. Like we all just like wanted in. I, I I like to say like in COVID times, I would have hung out with my buddies in a room, but because that wasn't possible, like I got a bunch of people together and just like watching you guys all throw down. Although I looked at that course, I wanted, I don't know if this is how it felt. I looked at it and I was like, that seems like it's gonna be the most painful. Like there's nothing holding you back. And I think almost to date, my most painful marathon was Chicago where it was just like, I think my heart rate was just jacked like for so, so long. Um, so I looked at that course and I was like, a lot of respect because I also knew like there, there's just nothing holding you guys back from just going for it from the gun, um, which is exciting, but it's intimidating. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think we all felt the same way, but it was almost like kind of a, a free chance to go for it. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, we'll go out in 6430. And, you know, I, I looked around, there were like 15 guys there. And I remember t- talking to Jared and just being like, damn, dude, there are so many guys here. And you know, that a lot of people are about to hit some hard, hard miles, but it's just like, well, we're here. And, uh, well, Peter, before we go off the rails too much further, 
we're going to thank you for joining us. And uh, yeah, such a cool story. Um, and, you know, we'll continue to follow and just, uh, yeah, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. It's so much fun to relive these stories. And, and Peter, one last thing, where can we, where can people find your writing uh, that we mentioned? Oh yeah. So um, I'm uh, peterbromka.com. I put up all my stories about races, about sort of like the journey that I've been on. Um, and then at, at Bromka on Instagram, I tend to do like shorter stories about training with my teammates or, you know, just sort of like life as a marathoner. Great. And we'll link that in the show description as well. And once again, thanks for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thanks, Peter, for your time. Really appreciated him coming on and joining us on this episode. If you liked it, as always, share it with a friend. Subscribe on your podcast app. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can check the show notes or the link to our website, and uh, you can pick up some D3 Glory Days merch. Wear that to practice next week. Um, also, you can buy the podcast a coffee. These small donations go a long way for website hosting and just helping us continue to bring you uh, great content. So. Until next time, here's to the glory days. Mm-hmm.